0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica,
1: Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 298. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective.
0: Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 298 you're listening to. My guest today is Nathan Smith, who's a sound designer who's worked in the world of film and games. His game credits include Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Incredibles, Ratchet & Clank, Size Matters, 007 Everything or Nothing, and Fight Club to name a few. And he's also worked on several movies, including The Matrix, We Are Legion, The Story of Hacktivists, The Scorpion King, and a host of many others. Nathan joins me from his home in Texas to talk all about the world of sound and sound design. Very excited to have him coming on. Nathan Smith here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about audio minimalism. I know, a lot of you are rolling your eyes right now that have a lot of gear, and you're like, oh, Boudreaux, what are you doing? This is not going to be uh, me ranting about how you got to get rid of all your gear or how having a lot of gear is like some kind of mortal sin. I'm not even going to go there. I don't I don't believe that. So here's the thing. A lot of you have been involved in the audio world for a long time. You've developed an arsenal of gear and workflows around that gear. I'm not going to be the one to sit here and say, you got to get rid of all that. No. If that works for you, keep doing it. That's your thing, and that totally is viable. What I'm really aiming this at is those who don't have a lot of gear. Maybe you don't have the room, maybe you don't have the money, maybe you don't have the desire to have a lot of gear, and that's fine. What I want to impress upon those that don't have a lot of gear is consider keeping yourself as an audio minimalist. Doing more with less. Consider keeping your footprint smaller, If you're a mix engineer and you don't have a lot of gear, your success is not necessarily going to depend upon you going out and spending a ton of money on a used console because you think you got to get out of the box to be successful. Not the case at all. If that is the desired workflow you have, well, that's something you might want to consider. But if you're willing to go with an in-the-box workflow, it's definitely far more economical, it's more portable. When you buy a piece of gear, We know that you're not just buying that piece of gear. You're going to have to insure that piece of gear. You're going to have to attach it via cables to something. And you're going to have to have the space for that piece of gear, too. Now, if you're an established studio and you have an infrastructure in place already, this is not a, a big brain buster, because you probably have room in the patch bays, or you have the space to expand, or maybe you can move something out to make room for it. But if you're setting up a new space and you're trying to keep a small footprint, or maybe you have a small space, that's something to consider. The point is, is that whatever example you choose, you're gonna have to take these things into account. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you from getting the gear that you need or want, but consider your purchase. Consider the ability to be nimble if you stay small. All right, but let's talk about the perception issue. That's a, that's a point of insecurity for those who choose a audio minimalist approach. You might be insecure that you're not gonna look pro because maybe you have some promo shots of yourself and you're just sitting in front of a laptop, you know, with a DAW full of plugins. For a lot of people that just doesn't look as sexy as somebody standing in front of a, you know, a big console and a bunch of outboard gear. But really, are you gonna go and buy stuff based on the perception? I think it's better to put your eggs in the basket of trying to educate yourself to be the best audio professional you can be with the gear that you have. In some cases, you are going to be required to have a certain amount of gear. If you're doing um, location sound work on a film, you're going to have to be equipped with uh, wireless mics, and good ones are not cheap, and you're going to have to have a solid recorder. You're still going to have to have uh, enough kit with you to support what that film needs. So, that's where audio minimalism is not necessarily going to be ideal, because you want to be as prepared as possible. I think the audio minimalism idea is more applicable when it comes to people who are mastering, people who are mixing. And you know what? Quite honestly, one solution to audio minimalism is go and rent the gear when you need the gear. Whatever you decide to do, it's up to you. There's no judgment here. I just want to introduce the, the concept that you can do more with less, but if your job requires it or you need something or you you know it's going to have a, a great impact on the session, by all means, you're an adult. Do what you need to do, but don't be afraid to, to go small with, with your setup and, and be nimble with your setup. That said, I do love the gear that I have. And I get a lot done with it, and I'm really happy to have it. Many thoughts here, but consider the options. Consider what's best for you. Don't look at a picture in a magazine or hear an ad here on on my show and think, well, I have to do with what everybody else does. Be an individual, find out what works for you, and do what you need to do. Don't necessarily follow the crowd. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Nathan Smith, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. What is your title? If somebody were to say, what do you do?
0: What, what do you call yourself? I guess I'd have to go a sound designer, maybe. People have called me an avid recordist, but I guess sound design would be the most basic form.
1: What is your current role as far as a place you're working, or do you consider yourself a sound designer in your current role?
0: That's uh, that's where it gets really tricky because a lot of times I might be hired as a sound designer for a specific project. Sometimes I'll be hired just to record assets for a game or a movie, and sometimes I'm actually mixing, like I just finished mixing a a Marvel doc, and so sometimes I'll be a re-recording mixer. So that's what makes it tricky for me is I wear a lot of different hats, which is actually a lot of fun. It's just hard to identify myself sometimes.
1: And how long have you been involved in audio?
0: Oh, man, it goes way back. I guess it depends on where you want to break up playing music. I started off with music, playing trumpet in elementary band, and then switching to bass. And then I followed that all the way through, played in jazz bands, orchestras, big bands, marched in the Rose Parade with sousaphone. Ah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a wild ride. A lot of music background, which jazz was my real big passion, which landed me with a jazz scholarship at USC in the jazz studies department, which I pursued for a long time. And the tough thing for, I want to always be the best at what I do. Mm -hmm. And I was not going to be the best bass player. I'd be good enough. I mean, obviously I got a scholarship to go there and it's one of the best schools to go to, but. You know, I wasn't going to be the best and I had taken an internship at Dane Tracks which Dane Davis, he was working on Matrix and Go at the time, and I was exposed to that and got to be a little part of that. And that's when I put down my double bass, string bass, and my bass major and switched over to recording arts and pretty much just fell in love with sound, sound effects or just sound in the world being an instrument and not an actual musical instrument.
1: It's funny, we have one thing in common for sure. We have both marched in the Rose Parade.
0: What did you march with?
1: A snare drum.
0: Oh, just as heavy. I just, I remember it was only like the first mile and the part on my sousaphone that held the mouthpiece in broke. So I was literally holding my mouthpiece in the whole time. It was pretty crazy.
1: Oh my gosh. I still have the drum head that we were given with the Rose Parade logo. And yeah, that was a crazy time.
0: That's an experience. I mean, that goes up there on my list as well as I played in this pre-professional orchestra at UCLA and they always have a guest artist each year. And I was lucky enough to be there playing string bass in the orchestra when we had Yo-Yo Ma, Mm. which was another and we played at the Dorothy Chandler because of course it's Yo-Yo Ma. That was a really special experience too. (laughs) Where is it that you grew up? I would say I mostly grew up in Southern California in a little town called Hemet which is by Sun City or Palm Springs. It's a retirement town and it's a really boring town basically, but they do have, or when I was there, and I don't know, they probably still do have one of the best jazz bands in Southern California. So I was really big into jazz and went to jazz camps up in the mountains in Idlewild. You know, I was just surrounded by a lot of great opportunities for jazz. They also had a concert band, which I would play in, not so much an orchestra. I'd have to go out of town to participate in orchestras, but growing up there was really a big influence, I guess, on getting into sound.
1: When did audio or sound in general become important to you and why?
0: I've always loved sound. I guess there's a change from playing music and participating in that sort of thing to i guess it would have been when i took that internship at dane tracks and was exposed coming from a small town in southern california i didn't necessarily understand there was such a thing as sound effects or foley or those sorts of things pro tools a lot of things were in their infancy so i had a four track task but i was recording music and doing bands and albums and stuff like that at the time when i first got to college so it wasn't until that internship i think where i really realized This is definitely what I want to do for the rest of my life.
1: (laughs) Whose work inspired you in audio in the early days?
0: Well, going back, I guess one of my biggest inspirations was my bass teachers when I was doing music. I was lucky enough to study with Marsha Hawkins, who played with Miles Davis, and just an amazing teacher, and Bart Simolis and John Clayton Jr., just some of the best bass players and mentors. As I got into the post-world, or sound design it was a little trickier at the time because it was harder to there was no social media and the guys you'd look up to would be like dane or ben bird or you'd watch films and you'd listen and the things that were coolest those were the guys you looked up to and you wanted to be like and you'd try and figure out what they were doing
1: was it hard to find out what it was you wanted to do with all those different possibilities re-recording mixer sound effects field recording how did you kind of narrow down into sound design?
0: Yeah, you know, it was really tricky because when I started after college, I went and I worked at a place called Ad Music, and we did music for big ads, so Lexus, and you know, like full orchestra, big bands, and stuff like that. And I was an assistant engineer and tape op or whatever, and did things there because I couldn't I couldn't afford to stay at Dane Tracks because that was it was a non-paid thing. It's union, so it's a little tricky to get in. But I had to move on, so I did that for a while. And at the same time, I was building a, a studio with some friends in a downtown area, kind of the industrial space an old artist loft, which used to be Pabst Blue Ribbon Brewery. Mm. So over a span of five or six years, I had ended up building from really just a warehouse space, uh, like about a 3,000 square foot like studio where I could record, do voiceover, record fully, things like that mix. And during the dot-com, I participated in some streaming radio broadcast streaming and things like that. But ultimately, I ended up doing documentaries and independent things, trying to run my own studio in downtown LA. And I I had a lot of great things. I got to work on a lot of documentaries, a lot of independent films. I worked on a really cool animated sci-fi film where I got to record all these actors and actresses, which was really a neat experience having anyone from Danny Glover, Dennis Quaid, or just like these animation films, they just have these huge massive casts of people. So it's kind of neat to have the opportunity to do that. One thing doing the studios, if I back up for a second, in post-production in Hollywood, I found in my experience anyways, that it's very specific. So there's a Foley artist and they really know Foley and there's a mixer and they really know mixing. and There's a a dialogue editor that is just amazing at that. So their skills are from what I experienced at that time, they're very like in little capsules. So not one person knew a lot. So it was a challenge for me just to understand in the in the beginning days that, you know, if I do a mix that goes to Sundance on 35 millimeter, what volume is it gonna be? How do I mix it? Like, how does this even work? Because there's just there's so much to learn to deliver something you know a tv show you've got to be inspect there's just so much to learn from a to z to deliver a tv show or a video game or a 35 millimeter film so that was quite a big challenge opposed to working on games where the same people are touching everything kind of aware of everything also i'd note that when i had my studio at the beginning days of games there weren't a lot of in-house sound guys so i did a lot of contracting for a lot of different video games, and I would I would go to their studio and interface with them, but there really wasn't a full time audio person at every studio where like there is nowadays. So I had done a lot of games, but not actually with the developer in at the studio, in my early days.
1: Are people discouraged in the world of film from participating in all the different audio roles? Are they more driven to stay in their lane?
0: I think it's just more specialized and it's so competitive that you can't do more than one thing often and compete the same way in the early days of games. You would see people that would say they're a sound designer and a composer. That doesn't exist too much anymore because there's composers that are better than somebody that can be both. Similar when I went to USC to study bass, I could play in a jazz band and I could play in an orchestra, which was a great value. Yeah, like I, I had been offered a, an amazing scholarship to a smaller college, because I was kind of the value of two people for their for their music program. But when I went to USC, there was one guy that could play jazz really, really good, and he just did that. And one guy who could play an orchestra, and there's just no way one person can do as good at a high level in two different areas most often i mean there's always exceptions but for the most part i think that's why hollywood is really specific a lot of people can do a lot of different things i'm not saying a foley artist can't mix a film and they can't do effects but there's definitely like a specialization where people tend to stay in one area most often from what i experience anyways
1: who mentored you in those early days who did you pick up the phone to call and say hey I'm stuck i I need help on something Can, can you advise me
0: boy it's just tough the people you work with and and your friends around you i've had different post supervisors that will mentor me just in giving feedback in la you just you know any feedback you get and if it's negative that's great like your friends are the people who tell you when you screwed up or something's just not at the level that needs to be or it's just not fitting those are the things you just, you just really go after and you really appreciate, because if people aren't telling you, you just, your phone doesn't ring and you, you, don't, you don't work, there's nothing you can do at that point. So it's kind of a small world, I guess. I guess I just learned from opportunities mm-hmm. of trying different things and just asking friends. Nowadays, it's, it's a lot different than when I started. I don't necessarily have mentors. I look up to everyone around me. I'm just who I am. i don't, not trying to be like anyone else necessarily. I just like to learn and I'm inspired by people around me that do other things.
1: Do you have a preference when it comes to working in film or working on games or what thing do you enjoy the most?
0: That's a tough question because I really like learning and I like storytelling and I just like experiencing things. So like the documentary work that I do, that I help people with, there's really an really important stories and really valuable stories, whether they're like, I got to work on The King of Kong and A Fistful of Quarters, which is really more like a popcorn, fun documentary about video games. And I've worked on genocide documentaries that are just as valuable, that tell stories that are just really, really deep, but they're all really good stories that need to be told and are really important. Just for history and just for education, I've done documentaries on anonymous and anything from computer hacking to you name it, like this, the Marvel doc I just did, it's a, it's a great doc. It's about Marvel, which is great, but it's also about diversity, which if I can help tell that story, it's really important. Whereas when I work on a video game, I love puzzles, I love challenges, and I love problem solving. So often in video games, it's I really get a lot of enjoyment about problem solving and trying to figure out how to make sound work efficiently and effectively because there's just so much going on. And then I could just have a challenge like if somebody hires me to record something for a video game or something like that and they ask me to do a mic technique that I've never done before. It's just, it's a neat challenge and a great learning experience. So it's really tough. I I can't say I have a specific favorite, but I guess you could say that for, like I don't know that sometimes I'll be known for recording a certain thing and then I record something else. I guess you could say I jump around and I do different things, but I guess it's a part of a learning experience and Mm -hmm. a new challenge every day. If I can learn one thing every day or accomplish one little thing every day, it adds up and I feel like I'm making progress and I'm happy that way.
1: I want to talk to you about some business things for a bit. How do you determine what you charge? Yeah,
0: that's really difficult. It's very competitive as far as just trying to make a living in the sound world. I feel really privileged that I can pay my bills and whatnot. I don't make a ton of money. You get what you can. It depends, like on a documentary, I'll have a documentary where somebody comes to me and they say they have very little money and it's really not fair money to me, but it's a great story. I have a relationship with that client and I know they'll come back and hopefully when they come back, they'll have a little bit more money that's a little bit more fair. I guess what I have, done as I've gotten more mature is I just don't have a rate like say for a documentary somebody comes to me and they say they have a couple thousand dollars if I have the time to help them I'll give my goal is to give them the best value of two thousand dollars I could possibly give them it doesn't mean that I can give them the value of a documentary that's going to go to 35 millimeter and play worldwide it just isn't going to be able to be that level so I try to be honest with them on what I hope to deliver. And then I try to give them the the best value that they could ever spend. And that's kind of how I approach something. When I try and do a bid, there's a going rate, there's certain going rates for video game stuff. If you're getting paid by the hour or recording sound effects, it's it's pretty standard as far as typical union scale. You just kind of go by that.
1: How do you get work? And consequently, how do, how do you promote yourself? That's a good question. It's I don't do a lot of promotion, actually.
0: I have a great network of people that I work with and people will know me. Obviously, there's a social network and Slack channels. My YouTube channel, I enjoy doing that stuff, but I've also noticed that it it's a place to give back, but it's also a place where people will see me doing things and it might remind them, oh, hey, there's that guy, I remember him, maybe I could call him for some help for something. But it's pretty much just, I guess I just get work from a network of people that I know most like all of the work I'm doing right now is just by word of mouth.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you handle slowdowns in work? Recently, I
0: had been working for full-time game companies as a full-time employee for about probably six years until this last year. So it's a new experience for me. I'm trying to prepare myself. The, The general idea, I guess, is to have a couple months of savings to build that up so you can prepare for slow times. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like any audio job, there's always risk. Or even any full-time job, nothing's really permanent. So it's tough. I'm always trying to record. I'm always trying to do extra things to help Pat in case there's a problem of no work.
1: If you have a day off, are those the times that you actively jump on creating YouTube videos?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because a day off for me is instead of watching a movie, (laughs) sometimes I'd rather just record, you know, so my weekends, if I'm not spending them with family, then I'll often just come down to the studio, especially in the current times where you can't really go out and socialize anyways very easily. So often I'll, I'll enjoy just coming down and recording something or trying something new or try building something. I think like that Foley table that I made was something that I always wanted to do and that was my christmas break or my holiday break for the winter
1: i'll put a link to nathan's youtube channel so you could check out this foley table he's talking about and i just want to also say that your channel is really fun to watch i enjoy it immensely i've watched several of the videos especially yesterday i think i binged just a bunch of them (laughs) and uh, thank you found them incredibly informative for my background is primarily music and I consider myself a field recording hobbyist. So to watch that, I learn a great deal.
0: Now I appreciate that. The latest video I made for a couple of reasons. One is I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of microphones that a lot of people just can't afford or don't have. And when I learn and experiment with them and find ways to do things that people may not have thought of or don't have the equipment, they could get an idea uh, about what that equipment might do or not do. It's the 100 kilohertz microphone, 100,000 kilohertz microphones are, are really interesting and not fully understood by people outside of games or sound effect guys. So it's kind of fun to play with those. I was on the, the Sylvia Massey Zoom meeting the other night, which was really amazing. Oh, you were there. Were you on that too?
1: I was there as well.
0: Yeah. So I I just, I'm always amazed by her. I really admire her. I watch all of her YouTube videos as well. And I have her books and I love her passion and her spirit on, even if a mic, you know, it's the same thing for me. I could have a hundred mics up there and you may only need one, but for some reason, putting a hundred mics up there excites me to record something, then so be it. You know, it's like, it doesn't really matter. You just, if something excites you and you want to try something, it'll it can change the performance or what you're putting into something. But in the end of that, I was paired up with some, they they did little groups of people afterwards. And there were some people that weren't in sound effects, some younger people, and they were asking me about why would you record at 192 if you can't hear up there? And I was trying to let people watch that video and come to their own conclusion that, oh yeah, I can see when you slow something down, all those frequencies that were up there come down into what would have been just your regular sample rate area. So I was trying to keep the video really simple and let people kind of draw their own conclusion and not go into too much detail on what designer might do.
1: You know, it's funny, I, I actually, I bailed before the breakout groups on Sylvia's call happened. I just wanted to <laughs> see the mics that, that she was showing off, which for the listener, if you could find it on YouTube, I think it, it may be reposted by AES, but Sylvia essentially showed off the collection of mics she recently purchased, and it's an incredible collection. But I wanted to kind of zero in on the discussion with you about the, the 192 thing. We don't typically go into too much technique or gear talk on this show, but I think this is an important thing to to talk about, and it's something that I, as a music person getting into field recording, discovered in the discovery process of oh, how do how do people in this world operate? And that's when I discovered the Sanken mics that you know can record up to 100k, and I started to ask the same question: Why on earth are these people recording at 192, knowing that in the music world it's like most people record it? 48 or 96 generally, or maybe even 44, but 192 is somewhat not normal. So I started to ask the question and saw the mics and understood then, oh, you record like that. And then when you pitch it down for sound effects creation, you get all that clarity with it. And it was just, I I think my head exploded when I discovered that.
0: One of the neat things about those sort of microphones is you experience and learn what makes Frequencies up there because not everything has those frequencies. So it would be kind of if I'm going to record room tone 192, I don't know that there's going to be much value <laughs> up there. <laughs> so to have those mics, you start to learn where you can take the advantage of that. And those mics are really unique because those are really the only mics. So I have the, the micro UZIs and like a Sony D100 will go really high in those frequencies, but nothing like those Sankins. And it's another thing you learn is that I didn't really show in the video, and it's hard to explain, is when you slow any sound down, your reverb gets bigger and your your noise floor gets larger real quick. And there's a lot of problems with lights. I have some fluorescent lights or fluorescent little bulb lights in that room I've got to replace because they make noise at 70,000 hertz. And it's very little, but I have to remove that. Regular mics would never even catch that. Or if you put a camera in your room to film yourself, there's a chance you're going to get a little bit of noise over that 20,000 kilohertz that you have to go and clean up. But I'm fortunate uh, too that you don't see in that video, I have a room that's Kevin Hughes designed with acoustics in the room, and it's, it's amazing. So I'm able to pitch it down and not have a massive amount of reverb. That's often why I, I mic so close as well because when you pitch something down it you're just doubling the reverb and your noise flow every time so it's something that even if you have the mics you can't always be able to experience what i was trying to share with on that video
1: generally speaking i'm discovering a whole nother approach and thought process about gear in this world that i'm that's become my new hobby i i did buy a sony d100 and i'll leave it out all night in the backyard It really hit me the other day when I pulled in some recordings into Isotope RX and I saw this whole series of some activity happening really high up and I was like, are those bats? I had to drop it all the way down to 11 hertz to hear it clearly as what sounded like bird chirping. Yeah. And I was like, that's incredible. It just, once again, head exploding moments, which after almost 30 years in audio, is great to have. It's an eye-opening moment.
0: Yeah, I was, in, I was in New Orleans this last year, I think, and I was at some hotel on the seventh floor, and I had just put my, my D100 out, and I always record at the highest sample rate, of course, and I put it out on the balcony overnight to get some distant city sort of ambience of just distant traffic. And when I got back home, I popped it into RX and had the same discovery that you did. There's bats. And then I went to the internet and searched and sure enough, there are bats in in New Orleans and I had no idea. And it was a really cool moment because you just, you never would know they were there unless you happen to see them flying around.
1: What's important in the gear you use to you?
0: It just has to be something that's really accessible and easy to use. The easier something is to grab and use, the more I'll use it. So I have, you know, I built, like I built the Foley table to make my workflow easier, which means I'll do something more. There's some mics that i gravitate to or certain equipment that i gravitate to but it's always the easiest thing i you know you can get a good recording from something you could buy at best buy i've recorded weather lightning strikes with a zoom h2 recorder that you could get for 150 bucks and it can sound amazing so i guess it's tough cuz i like to think that there's a best mic for a scenario but if you don't have a mic with you then <laughs> It's kind of defeats the purpose. So sometimes I'll just have one mic on me. I'll just have the D100. For gun sessions, I'll have every mic that I can plug into a device to record mm-hmm. for every perspective I can get. I've just learned so much how much you can get different sounds out of different mics, especially for guns.
1: They're discontinued, and I know that you're familiar with the Sony PCM-10. God, what is it? I'm oh, just...
0: the M10? The M10. Yeah, that's the M10. I
1: have two of these, and I carry one around in my pocket whenever I leave the house I always grab my wallet my cell phone and the m10
0: <laughs> yeah I have three of those as well I have two separate field backpacks that I can grab-huh and they're kind of different purpose backpacks with different recording gear in them so I have one in each one of those and then I keep one in a, a jacket pocket that I have and then I keep my old zoom h2 in my glove box in my car just in case <laughs> I know I just
1: I, I feel like at this point like every time I hear something my my mind goes oh <gasps> Oh, I got to go and record that, you know, whether there was somebody jackhammering out in front of the house the other day and on any other day that would piss me off. But the minute I heard it, I reacted like a little kid. I was like, Oh, jackhammers. And I went out there and recorded the jackhammers. It was the funniest thing.
0: I'll set that M10. I'll just set that on my tire when I go to the store, when I go into do shopping or I go somewhere. If you went to the park, you could set that on top of your car, hit record and when you come back you might have gotten something
1: or somebody might have gotten your M10.
0: Yeah, it's I mean that's another thing. It's 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 not cheap, but it's not it's not a D100. I would be a little bit more leery to to leave my D100
1: on top of the car. <laughs> So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app, check it out. What makes you decide to buy a piece of gear? Is it a job? Is it a feature? Like why buy certain pieces of gear?
0: I guess a lot of times it's to make my job easier. Sometimes it would be from like, I recently bought some binaural things for a job that I was just trying to get something better for the client. A lot of times it's just experimentation. Sometimes it's just I see other people like on social media that will have something and I'll try it. I think like the 100 kilohertz mics, I wasn't even aware of until somebody else had shared what they do. So a lot of it's just experimental and just trying different things out. I have a lot of field recording mics. I don't have as many like musical instrument microphones that a music studio might have.
1: Do you have to exercise restraint when it comes to buying gear and going overboard financially? I do.
0: I've slowly, I'm almost to a point where I have most of the things off my wish list. (laughs) So it's taken me quite a long time. I I always recommend buying one mic at a time and you kind of learn them as tools as you go. There's a few mics that I, if I buy two or three mics at once, there's a chance that I might never learn or use a microphone, which isn't good. But yeah, I just, it's exciting to try a new microphone and see what it will do or what it can't do, or I'll be out recording with somebody else and they'll have some microphones that I hear and I just have to have those microphones. <laughs> well, I have I mean I have every microphone can be have a different value. Like I have there's this little wireless and I'm forgetting the name, but it's about the size of a key fob and it has a magnetic thing on it and it's a recorder and a mic and everything all in one. Mm. And when I would go to the grocery store back before the pandemic days, I would just hit record on it with my phone cuz you can turn it on. And I would just magnetically put it under the shelf in the store as I go shopping. And then when I was done, I would remember obviously to grab that and then I'd get what I would get. And, you know, most of the time you go to the store, there's music, so you can't use any of that. But between every once in a while, they have breaks where there is no music and there's something interesting that you might be able to use for... To build a background or something like that so
1: you're gonna have to share that with me <laughs> like, i gotta know about this device
0: yeah i'm forgetting the name right now but it was on a kickstarter thing and it's waterproof as well oh no but it's fairly inexpensive okay i'll get you the name i forget what it is right now yeah but,
1: when you think of it yeah i want to talk a little bit about success first of all what constitutes success for you boy that's a good question i think
0: For me, it's I've always looked like if I look at music, I love orchestra, I love jazz, I love hip hop, I love country. If it's successful, same with a movie. Even if I don't like the content of the movie or an actor or something, if the story is told well, even a video game. If the video game is like my daughter plays Roblox, and it's graphic wise, an older person would say oh that looks horrible and they wouldn't like it but what it does as a story or or a game is very successful the same thing i worked on a a kid show that was like power rangers called common rider dragon knight and you could see sometimes seams and costumes and things like that and as an adult you notice those but kids they don't notice those they're not looking at them so i think success to me is if you've told the story the best that it can be told to the audience that is taking in that story
1: Hmm. And what about success from a career perspective or job perspective?
0: Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't really know what that would constitute or be. Okay. I feel like myself anyways, I have to continually trying to be successful every day. I can't do a thing and just be successful from that one thing. Obviously, you have a history and you have a volume that you've contributed to as an artist, but I feel like I'm just constantly trying to try things new to try to see success. Mm -hmm. But as an artist, you're never really happy with something. There's always something you can do better (laughs) or learn. So it's really hard. It's like it doesn't take too long to learn, not to call your your mix the final mix or <laughs> cuz nothing's ever final it seems like so but i guess success for me is just being able to continue doing what it is that i love to do
1: where do you seek inspiration for what it is you do
0: it's a couple places i Find inspiration. I find a lot of inspiration from colleagues that I work with or that I see like on the Slack channel or social media. I'll see something that somebody does, and it definitely, you know, anyone from like Sylvia Massey talked about taking an old phone and making that into a microphone. So you know, I, would, I got a phone and I did that because that seemed to be cool. I've seen people mod a speak and spell so they can do bit modding and stuff like that. So I bought some speak and spells and I tried that. It's all been done before, but I just wanted to experience it. Sometimes I'm just inspired or I get a lot of motivation from a project I'm working on. And it presents a challenge that is just really exciting that I would have never thought of. So just left to my own. Recording whatever I want to, I can get so far, but when a project comes along and has a specific challenge, that can also really be inspirational and and try and really level up what I'm trying to do.
1: How do you handle failure? Well, failure is actually good.
0: That's where you learn a lot. So just like I'm guessing in most of my YouTube videos, there's a lot of of things that I might've done wrong. And I do things wrong every day as most people do when I can identify what might be wrong. Sometimes what we call wrong isn't necessarily wrong, but when you can identify failure, then you usually turn it around into a learning experience. So I hope to fail often and learn from that quickly. The worst kind of failure is where you don't learn or you miss something so large that the opportunity passes you
1: by. Do you ever get burned out on doing audio and just get fed up with it?
0: Somehow, I have not yet. Um, <laughs> it's hard work. There's a lot of tedious stuff. A lot of times what people see like in my videos is there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work and a lot of other things that you have to do, but it bounces off a lot of things that are a lot of hard work and take a lot of energy are really rewarding in the end. So if it was really easy, it probably wouldn't be as rewarding. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, it's a happy accident. It's rewarding and you did not do much. and It's pretty neat you know it's a hard work but somehow i haven't gotten burnout yet i think part of it might be i just have i'm so spread out i record just anything and everything even like george that you've had on
1: george vlad
0: yeah he inspires me so i saw what he did and not that i want to do what he does but i want to learn and experience some of that and have some of those skills so i started recording more ambience and things like that i'm not going to jungles and things like that but i'm trying to pick up some of those skills just to have for my own and the camera work that him and Robbie do that inspired me to try to level up my video quality and my storytelling for sound.
1: And audience, George Vlad was on, he was on episode 289. And I have to credit George with being one of the people that really inspired the hell out of me to jump into the world of field recording. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode if you want to check it out. I get so much from
0: other people, I try to get back myself whenever I can. But those guys will also inspire me to try something that I may not have thought of doing. And it really keeps me on my toes and just trying different things because I'm not, i really don't like to specialize in one specific thing. I might specialize in a sort of thing for a little bit of time and then I try to turn my attention, and that'll help me not get bored with a certain thing yeah. and make it feel monotonous. Because, you know, I can't imagine if I would have been a music recordist doing bands, looking back, I could have felt burnt out because you might get stuck recording a certain genre and after a while, there's not as many challenges because you figured all those out. So I guess I like to, as long as I have a challenge in front of me and I can have some sort of a sense of accomplishment, I, I don't get burnout out
1: too easy. Do you do anything, Nathan, that you feel keeps you competitive consciously? I just do what I love to do, it
0: seems like. And I guess it attracts the people that want to work with me or want to hire me for something. I don't necessarily try to compete against other people. Like I don't don't really have any libraries out or I, you know, it's it's weird. I don't really feel competitive. I'm really just trying to continue doing what I do. (laughs) As long as I can pay the bills and, and keep doing what I love. That's really what's most important to me. So there's always competition, but I guess I'm not really looking out for competition too much. I'd rather just learn from other people and Definitely not trying to ever compete with George, that's for sure. Or or many of the other people that I work with or work for. Everyone brings their own unique thing. So, yeah. I think competition can be great, but I don't feel like in the sound world, everyone's just so, so graceful and so giving. The competitive spirit is really, it's really more just fun.
1: I want to talk about life outside of audio. In regards specifically to health and exercise, is there anything that you do to or or don't do? Are you are you one who who exercises, who engages in any kind of healthy or unhealthy behavior?
0: Now, that's a good question. I try to exercise a lot. This latest pandemic has made it a little tough. I can't really go into the gym or whatnot. So I try to do exercise. I try and keep fit. I. We'll try and do projects or things where I can burn calories or, or be active. Sometimes when you go out and do field recording, you can get some exercise just right there. But yeah, I, health is is really important, you know? So it's good to be healthy. You can just do a whole lot more and less health bills means more money for gear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you have any hobbies outside of audio?
0: Oh boy, hobbies outside of audio. I guess you could say I have, I have Rubik's Cubes that I love to uh, solve. I have the seven by seven and a bunch of different Rubik's cubes that I solve probably three or four times a day. I just have to be doing something all the time. So if my computer's processing, I can just be doing something. It's really hard for me to sit still. I have a learning disability that I luckily discovered when I was in elementary, thankfully to my mom, who's one of my biggest mentors as well. And she's an occupational therapist. So I was really fortunate that my mom was able to help identify that I, was different and that I could get the help that I needed. Like I went to USC on special exception. I didn't have the grades. When I submitted, I got turned down to USC and then went ahead and I didn't know that you could submit as uh, having a learning disability and get a second chance. And I did that and I was able to get in and I was able to graduate in four years, which was one of the most difficult things I could have probably ever put myself into doing because it's just really not the sort of system or the way that works well with, with my brain. So anyways, I you could say I have ADD or whatever tension, but I guess I think a lot differently than most people. It's really just a difference. I'm not better or worse than anyone else like anyone is. You just have different abilities. Your brain's just kind of organizes things a little differently. So I do enjoy puzzles. So I have Rubik's Cubes. I like building things with my hands. I still play video games and watch movies. Obviously my daughter, I have a, my daughter's nine. I love spending time with her, whether it's playing games or drawing or, or doing different things like that. And and trying to spend as much time as I can with my family.
1: I was going to ask you work-life balance. How do you handle that?
0: It's tough, I mean, I think the best the best advice or the best thing I try to follow is just work hard during the hours that I have work, and then when you get off work and family is there, then you really focus on that. I guess it's kind of, I don't know that I believe there's multitasking, but there, you, know, you can do more than one thing at a time, but it, one dilutes another thing if you're doing two things, they kind mm-hmm. of uh, take away from each other. I've learned that if you can transition from doing one thing to another quickly, you can gain a little bit of time or a little bit of leeway and you can get a little bit more like if you can walk in the door to work and be 100% attentive to your work. And when you walk out your door of work, be 100% attentive to, to family, say, and not blend them together. I feel like that's been a, a help to me to be successful or to, to try to, I don't want to say more productive, but just be able to have more focus.
1: What is your financial advice to others in the world of audio?
0: Well, there's the advice that I can give, but the advice that I don't always take. (laughs) When you buy gear, I think the most important thing is gear should pay for itself. You shouldn't be buying gear that no one's paying for. Now, this is difficult because a lot of times you have to learn some gear to make money from the gear. So there's there's some inherent risk involved there. I've bought in gear that I probably ended up paying for myself in the past, and it's a loss, and that's no one's paying for that, it, it's not a good deal. There's been situations where I buy a lot of microphones that I don't have a job for specifically, but I've done it at risk in hopes that I would get work to pay for those and break, be able to break even so I'm not paying for them out of my own pocket. So both cases have happened, but In general, I I always try and advise myself or others not to buy gear well that you don't need or isn't gonna pay for itself or help pay for a client. Like if I'm working for somebody, it's understood that I need to be making them more money than they're paying me. I need to bring that sort of value. So as a full-time employee, I wouldn't ask an employer to buy something that they don't need just because I want it if it didn't make sense for what we needed to accomplish. So, you know, it's tough. Gear is a really difficult thing to approach. If you buy smart stuff, I've bought most of my gear could resell for the price that I bought it for. Same when I had my studio in LA, I had a lot of really nice microphones that I don't have anymore that I had to sell. Like I recorded a lot of voice for that animated sci-fi film and I bought a Bronner VM1 and a Martech MS-10, which is to me one of the best signal flows you can have for recording voice. It's amazing. Across kid, old man, lady, every voice, it excelled. But that's about $10,000 for those two pieces of equipment. It's really expensive but the project justified paying that because it was a large budget and you have one chance to record these big actors and there's just no room for failure. So it justified buying that gear. But in the end, because it was good equipment, I was able to get my money back anyways. So it's tough if you buy some of the prosumer stuff. Like my H6, I've gotten my value out of the cost of that but I'm not gonna ever resell it because I would probably give it away before I resold it if I didn't want it because it doesn't maintain a value of like the Sanken or some of the other high value microphones.
1: It's interesting how that works. What will hold value and what will not?
0: And I try to buy microphones and advise people to buy microphones that they're not gonna need to upgrade. So if you want a four, like a Sennheiser 416, and you want a cheaper version? Don't buy the lower version of that Sennheiser because you're always going to want to up. Like if you buy the 416, it really is going to replace that lower version for field recording. I would advise them to go for the Rode NT NT3 or a different mic that you don't feel like. Once I buy what I really wanted, it's going to have no value. Right, like a Shure 57 it's always going to have value like i don't use those often but if i do an explosion session i'm going to put the 57s right up there where they might be exploded right so <laughs> they still have value even if i'm not use i mean it's a great mic for a lot of things in general but like an M10 i can i won't get my money back probably for the M10 but i'll put it in places where well i'll get my i'll get my money back in what i record with it most likely but i won't be able to sell it for what i purchase it for. But again, it's a piece of gear I'll leave on my tire on top of my car when I go in to go do some shopping or at the park. And I don't have to anxiously worry about somebody stealing it and the result, you know, the financial hit to that. So.
1: Are you a saver or a spender?
0: I guess probably a spender. I'm more of a futurist or risk taker, I guess. I try to look forward to opportunity and that's, I guess, inherent in taking risks. I wish I was a better saver. I'm getting better at that as I get older, I guess.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you actively save for retirement?
0: Well, I mean, it's it's difficult. I was, but when the full-time position that I had went, uh, went out of business, it was a huge surprise. So I lost most of my savings in that with the pandemic and just so many things changing. Um, it's tough. So I'm actively working on rebuilding my savings.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you, how has COVID been affecting your life Oh, it's
0: tough. What you can record is it's just changes a lot. You know, I used to record crowds and walk around the, the town. I guess I was a lot more active and more willing to just go out on the street, I guess. The, with COVID, I've tend to focus more just in the studio or, you know, really distant things that might be way out in some fields somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different. I, you know, like when I record guns, which I'll still do even with COVID because I know these people really well, you're still interacting with quite a few people so it would bring up your chances. It's like a, when I brought a chicken into the studio to record, that's not my chicken, that's somebody else's chicken. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that's not my that, chicken. You... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to get those opportunities, you have to interface with a lot of people. And so with COVID, you're, it seems like I'm losing opportunity of interacting with people that say, Oh, I have this or I have that. Are you interested in recording it? Because when you start asking people, that's the most amazing thing about sound effects recording is you don't know how many things are right around you that you don't know about that you could have access for too if people knew that you do what you do. So my videos obviously help people understand that and they'll, it helps it so sometimes somebody might come to me and say, oh, I have a chicken or I have, I have a bunch of guns. Next time you do guns, let me know, I'll bring some guns out or my neighbor has a helicopter and if you need a helicopter to record, let me know. It's like, you know, one company I was working at, the receptionist had seen my videos and her dad is a retired pilot and has a house on an airport that you actually have a hanger on your house like as a garage hmm. and it's out here in texas so there's these basically private airstrips and there's houses on them with hangers so airplane enthusiasts who actually have houses with an airplane hanger that they can just literally fly right from their house just straight up into the air and she told me about that and she said he doesn't have airplanes but it's got this really cool hangar door the airplane door bifold thing and CNC machines and all kinds of stuff. And of course, we were down there recording that stuff right away. It's it's just neat. Like the same person did meditation. So they had singing bowls and glass singing bowls, just all kinds of things that you can record. So I feel like the socializing with people and communicating really brings, or going out in the, and seeing things like the local parade last year, I saw this fire truck that had the coolest sounding engine, really old fire truck. And with COVID, it's a lot harder for me to Walk down the street and find the person who owns that fire truck, so I can try to record that sometime.
1: I want to ask you about that specifically. There's two parts of this question. First, how do you go about interacting with people, COVID or no COVID, if you want to record something like the hangar door on somebody's airplane hangar on their property? How do you go about doing that? I mean, do you just say, "Hey, I do sound effects. Can I come record your hangar door?"
0: Pretty much, or I mean, in that case, the the lady who who brought me that opportunity, she had seen my videos and said, "Oh, hey, I've got some sounds. If you're interested, I could ask and see if." And people usually will get excited and they might want to be part of it or they just like to give back. It's amazing how many people will will have a car or a gun or a, a thing and be fascinated with it and be willing to. To help out i mean a lot of mics you know when i record guns or explosions or anything like that there's always more than more than enough people that want to go help (laughs) or be part of that what part of texas are you in i'm in i guess close to dallas or frisco is i'm actually in mckinney which is next to frisco which is close to dallas okay you know I'm still like the place i record guns it's great when i was in california there's no way i would have this opportunity so i try to gravitate towards opportunities that are in front of me i fine as a sound designer if I decide what I want to record when I go out or I try to do something really specific it's harder than just going with the flow or what's in front of you so I was lucky enough to meet a farmer out here it's about 20 minutes away from where I'm at that has 20 acres and a friend of mine had lived out there and there was a goat stuck in a fence and they stopped to help get the goat stuck out of the fence which in turn was this farmer and they got the goat out and the farmer had gotten home and came out and they got to talking and they had mentioned that, that he had a friend that wanted to record some guns and explosions. And before he even left, they were shooting Tannerite off their porch <laughs> and just developed into a good friend. Now I can basically record guns and explosions anytime. Just have to make sure to not let the cows out. It's. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing, you know, and he likes to be part of it. I always try his family. I, if they're around and they want to be part of the, you know, sometimes I'll record exotic guns, like a 50 caliber or, or a suppressed gun, which are pretty rare. So I try to make sure that he can be part of that so he can experience what it is too. Because a, a lot of recording, it goes farther, even with like George, I, I can listen to his recordings and they're they're amazing. But I know he'll have something that I'll never have, which is that experience of being there. I'm not necessarily a gun owner. I own some starter pistols for recording impulse responses, but I don't own any other real like lethal guns. And I didn't really even shoot guns before I recorded guns. So I've learned a lot about them and experiencing shooting a fully semi-auto gun, besides getting the sound, remembering the feeling and the heat from the barrel and the muzzle rise and all those things are really valuable to me if I'm doing guns for a game and I'm trying to convey that extra sense of emotion or experience into the sound you can try and do that with a recording but you can only get you know so far to where the experience will really help tell that story like a a suppressed gun if you shoot a fully auto suppressed gun that suppressor is going to be so hot if you put it on a plastic table it'll melt a hole through it so you can't hear that but i can explain that to a game developer or add a sizzle sound to the suppressor on a gun in a game if it's been shot a lot i can add a sizzle sound it's not realistic but it's going to convey what i got to experience so
1: a lot of nuance just in in sound effects collection in general and field recording but when you can go and experience that, you can relay that to the developer or whoever's doing the the project.
0: Well, it's like George would be able to tell you what those birds are communicating. I can enjoy his recordings. It sounds like those birds are laughing at a joke in that morning dawn, and I love it. I don't know if they're laughing or how they're communicating, but he'll always have something from that experience. So that's a great thing about recording. I learn If I record a car, I learn about how the car is made and you have to know where to place your mics and all of that stuff. But every time you record something, you typically learn something about whatever it is you're recording, which is just, it's just awesome, you know?
1: The other part of my question had to do with how do you organize your thoughts about what perspectives to record? Because one thing that I'm encountering now is I'll come across something, I want to capture it, but then I'll, I'll get lost sometimes in, oh, but maybe I should use these mics and these mics or these mics to record a number of different perspectives, which your video on the typewriter and the roller coaster highlights, which I'll include in the show notes. So how do you make the decision about the perspective?
0: It's really tricky. I mean, for games, because I work in games, I can approach something way different than I would for a movie. In a movie, you just need one car crash sound or one bullet impact into a hood. In games, you need a random, randomize five versions, four or five versions of everything pretty much. and you know, you're going to pitch them. And so I guess I think of things a lot differently for different types of sounds that I might record. For a character running around in the game, you have to isolate the footsteps separate from the, the cloth that they're wearing, separate from the bag or the gun that's, that's shaking. So I guess a lot of times I'll think of the perspective for what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. For the typewriter, I knew I wanted to tell a story or try and demonstrate a value of doing multi-mic because a lot of libraries you buy, they'll have a stereo master track. And for the last four years, I my library consists of all raw microphones. I recently started doing a mixed down stereo track as well, just so you can easily grab it and use it for something like a film or a or commercial library. But I wanted to demonstrate the value of having multiple microphones and maybe keeping those in a library that you would use which I kind of left up in that video for people to try to experience or think about themselves. Maybe you're going to pitch that down to, to um to sound like a roller coaster but you know that that the low frequency that that long the geo long if you pitch that down you're definitely not going to hear it anymore because it's so low that yeah. no one's going to have a speaker for that so having those multi those separated files would allow you to not slow that one down but slow everything else down or mix and match different performances with different microphones
1: so i guess it just depends on the gig you're doing and the requirements yeah. of that gig
0: yeah, it's like, so like on a gun, a gun shoot is a good example. It's pretty common, is if I need to make guns for a game, typically you need a suppressed version. You know, it's a suppressor, you need a first-person shooter version, a third-person shooter version, and then some, like, like in Borderlands 3, a gun is built of separate parts, so you, have, you need all these different parts, and you need different versions of every single part. So I've slowly learned over time, if you put a lavalier on the shooter's glasses, or you can try to gaffer it to the gun. But if you put a simple lav on a person's glasses, which you usually wear for eye safety anyways, you're gonna pick up the mechanism sound. If you put a microphone 10 feet away, you're typically gonna record the reverb of the space is most of what you get. I found that if you put two PZMs about 10 feet in front of uh, the shooter, because the pickup pattern's fairly small, it doesn't pick up the reverb it picks up this more thumpy sound and you can often use that as a suppressed sound because most recording a suppressed gun is difficult because a lot of people don't have them you have to have paperwork there's a lot involved to have a a suppressed or fully automatic gun so i don't get to record those too often so i try to find unique ways to get a suppressed like sound for a gun that i might not be able to record Hmm. and then also if you have a lot of different perspectives, the what you can make from all of those, if you do it right, you can make a lot of different things. It's tricky because a lot of times I'll have microphones that are very similar in the same location and they don't get a lot of difference of sound. So the value of variety isn't as big as like in the video where I was really trying to push myself to try to get eight different unique microphone placements. So you could actually say, yeah, that sounds different. I could see how that could be used.
1: We're about out of time, so we got to wrap up. I, I need to ask, where can people find out more about you?
0: I guess the best place right now would be my YouTube is something that I keep active, which is uh, YouTube Nathan Smith Sound is my channel. I post my monthly video of recording and other videos that I make there. I don't actively have a personal website. There is my LinkedIn and my Twitter, um, Twitter's kind of tricky. I do put post audio stuff, but you know that's like all kinds of political and there's that's there's a little more crazy town up there, but that's NL3 Audio is my Twitter name.
1: Well, I'll put a link to YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. and if people want to reach out to you, ask you questions, they can obviously contact you via LinkedIn of course. Is there anything I might have left out that you want to discuss before we wrap it up?
0: I would encourage anyone to, if you just try, you could, if you put your mind to anything, even if it seems really big, if you just do a tiny, tiny little bit every day, even if you did like 10 or 15 minutes of something every day, it's just amazing after a year or two years or three years, what that can amount to. That's really what i am really excited about with sound.
1: Well, thank you so much for making time for me, especially last minute. I know I kind of hit you up saying, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? (laughs) So much appreciated and I'm really looking forward to future posts from you on YouTube. It's been really enjoyable. So thank you so much, Nathan.
0: Thank you, likewise. It's always great to share and talk about sound.
1: Will you take care? You too, thanks. here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank everybody that helped out, including, of course, Anne-Marie Plo on editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the one, the only voice talent of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, stop by workingclassaudio.com, and until next time, take care.